Hello once again, welcome to Reason for Hope. We're glad that you're joining us today. Reason for Hope is an hour-long broadcast which is guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, it's a Bible Q&A show, a live Bible Q&A show. You can send your questions in through various online platforms. We will receive them during the show and hopefully get to all your questions today. So that's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. So we're glad you're joining us, whatever platform you found us on. We're glad that you are with us today for our journey through the word one question of the heart at a time. I haven't used that phrase actually. I'm going to bring that back. <laughs> that was our that was our uh, that was our buzzword. That for was years. your buzzword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't used it, yeah. but I'm using it today. Yeah, that's, it's that's, good. That's how we're going to roll. My name's Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. Like I say, I'll be keeping my eye online on all those questions coming in with us today. Once again, Father Son team right here. I'll let you guess which one's which. But uh, Pastor Scott Richards, who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, and Pastor Sean Richards, who has wears many hats, our student minister. And, and uh, a creative mind yes. and once Bear again you have of the stick of that's knowledge right. tell us again what you have there because that was very interesting your little prop this is a gift given to us by our former head of the children's ministry it is a answers in genesis historically accurate cubit ruler that's really cool yeah. that's really cool it's good to think of that when you when you're uh, reading the old testament some of the the structures they made and such, and thinking of what the measurements of those things. That's pretty it, cool. It can also be used to smite certain <laughs> members of this panel who show up with 30 seconds left yes. before airtime. That's right. <laughs> Whoever happens but to that's be within. But that's a little beside, behind the scenes. <laughs> Whoever happens board. to be within a cubit of the <laughs> stick. But uh, yeah. Well, once again, as I mentioned, uh, Reason for Hope is, is live with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We're here in Tucson, Arizona. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So. If you're in the Tucson area, if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, we'd love to have you come visit. We're located near Prince and I-10 on the on the west side of the freeway, right there in the beautiful uh, business park located. <laughs> Might be a hint of sarcasm. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> it is. Yes. Beautiful things happen, at least, right here yes. at Calvary Christian Fellowship. But um, uh, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can have a click around there, get to know us. But uh, for the purposes of tonight, if you go to that Watch Live tab right there, that will take you to our live page, or you can follow the direct link, which is ccftucson.online.church. ccftucson.online.church. If you put that in your address bar, that will take you to the same place. But you'll see our live video there. You can sign in with a username of your choice and uh, interact with us through the chat function, which will appear there as well. Or when we're offline, you'll see that countdown to our next show. You'll see a schedule of upcoming events, uh, not only a reason for hope, but also our services that we do here at Calvary Christian Fellowship on Sundays and Wednesday evenings. So that's the place. Anytime we're live, you'll find us live right there. And we're on Facebook, of course, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We're live there. Don't forget to like, and you can even share us around to your friends if you would like to help us have a further reach. But that's another way as well. You can use the chat function and send your question there. I'll be watching there as well for the questions coming in today. We have an app you can download on your mobile device. Once again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. That's our app. So you can watch us on your, your cell phone or your mobile device. And then we also have a channel on Roku and on Apple TV as well. So if you have those devices or a smart TV, you can add our channel on Roku and Apple TV. Watch us on your big screen. And of course, we're on YouTube. We're live there at uh, A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel. It's a good place to go um, to catch up on archive as well. If you click on the live tab, uh, that will take you to uh, an archive. Anytime we've been live, it will archive it there automatically. So say you missed a show or you'd like to recap something we covered 
or even check out our services here at CCF, then that's a great place to go. A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Our Pastor Scott here is on Twitter, Scott R4H, where he posts highlights from the show and commentary on, on world events. There's so much going on as it pertains to end times and, and prophecy and those kind of things. So it's uh, really interesting to follow along with Pastor Scott there on Twitter. There's the odd bit of shenanigan as well. Can you use shenanigan in a singular? I've only ever heard it's shenanigans. I've never heard of an individual sh shenanigan. Yeah, <laughs> yes. part of the herd of shenanigans. <laughs> yes. yes. What's the plural? Shenanigai? I don't Sh know. Yeah. Anyway, Pastor Scott on Twitter. Scott H. You will find him there if you're on Twitter. We're on Rumble as well. We post our uh, archive there on Rumble. Look for a reason for hope Bible Q and A. If you're familiar with that platform we're on there, don't forget to add us. We'd appreciate that as well. Look for once again a reason for hope Bible Q and A, and then our email address. Questions for hope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. Use that if you're listening to us on the radio as you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. That's the only place we're not uh, live, so to speak. But uh, use that email address, questions for hope at gmail.com, and we will get to that question on our next show. But we are glad that you are joining us wherever you are joining us. So once again, send your questions in, get them in early. Sometimes we do run out of time um, so get the questions in we'll try and do it on a first come first serve basis uh, well with all that being said pastor scott would you like to pray for us today i would love to do that well, let's do it before anything it. else happens here lord thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to celebrate your goodness and we pray that your presence would be here that the questions and the issues that we get into would be guided and directed by you lord and that because your word is going forth and you promised your word would never return to you void but always accomplish what you sent it out to do help us to uh, realize and recognize that what happens here can have eternal value as long as we're focusing in on you father glorifying your son and the power of your spirit as we answer questions from your holy word we pray, Father, that you would guide us into truth now, change people's lives. We pray even for those that might be on the outside looking in at a relationship with you, that they would come to know who you are in a personal way and be born again, being given a brand new life because they've put their faith and trust in what you've done for us, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, Jesus, in a moment of history so we could be reconciled to God. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, was there any update today, Pastor Scott? No, yesterday was pretty eventful as far as news yeah. is concerned. Yeah, uh, well, we've uh, been a little bit on the heavy-duty side as far as uh, some of the uh, different events that are going on in the world these days. We wanted to balance that off just a little bit by uh, some really extraordinary uh, good news. Uh, our good friend, uh, Joel Rosenberg, who's been a guest on our program here from time to time, really love Joel and really love uh, his ministry, his political thriller books. I mean, they're, they're all page turners. He just, just does such a wonderful job of, of uh, using his background in politics uh, and his skills as a writer to be able to reach people with the, the truth of God. He has, as we mentioned, allisraelnews.com. And uh, we encourage you to, to check out allisrael.com on a regular basis. But on uh, today's All Israel News uh, website, uh, there was a uh, really uh, wonderful article I would encourage you uh, to read in full uh, when you get the opportunity to, to do so. It details uh, in uh, some really interesting ways how God opened the doors for uh, Joel Rosenberg to be able to interview uh, Iran's exiled crown prince, Reza Pahlavi. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, the uh, amazing uh, visit that uh, Reza Pahlavi had to Israel, including praying 
at the Wailing Wall, being the guest of honor at uh, Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, uh, for Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, the amazing things that he said uh, regarding uh, Cyrus the Great and how it was his vision uh, to see Iran turn back to a uh, republic uh, where they could be a part of what he would call the Cyrus Accords, not the Abraham Accords, but the Cyrus Accords. King Cyrus was the one who uh, allowed Israel to uh, return from exile and rebuild their temple. And he sees a similar vision uh, for the Middle East. And uh, one of uh, the, the amazing things, you can read the twists and turns of how this all came together, it really was uh, the uh, hand of God uh, providentially bringing this together. But Joel had the opportunity to sit down and interview uh, Reza Pahlavi and, uh, in, in a far-ranging interview. And uh, you can see the entire interview on uh, the Rosenberg Report, which airs on uh, TBN. Go to tbn.com, look up the Rosenberg Report, and uh, you can see the entire interview. And it's really a fascinating interview to watch. But uh, on uh, the All Israel News website, he gives us this, uh, I guess uh, we would call appetite uh, wetter uh, to dig deeper into this interview. Uh, the, uh, the headline reads, uh, Reza Pahlavi acknowledged in the interview that many Iranians are leaving Islam and turning to Jesus Christ. Uh, Joel writes this, so what exactly is Pahlavi's vision of Iran's future, particularly for religious minorities like Christians and Jews? He said, I think the best guarantee for all faiths is for liberty to exist and the freedom of religion as a prerequisite to democracy. We need to end any kind of persecution. But the key is to have the guarantee of the rule of law and democracy and a secular system that separates religion from governance, which is the exact opposite of what's going on here. He noted that when the Ayatollah Rulah Khomeini came to power in Iran in 1979, the first wave of people who were immediately persecuted under this new ideology were Jews that had to leave Iran behind. Now, because of the evil of the regime, many Iranians are leaving Islam behind. Some are becoming atheists and agnostics, but he added, many are converting out of the faith and becoming Christians in Iran. Uh, this is a, a remarkable statement for someone in his uh, position uh, to offer here, but it uh, uh, co corroborates uh, the reports that we have heard uh, that uh, a tremendous revival is going on among the Iranian people about putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, the article says Christians, Jews, and Muslims and others need to work together, he said, to bring an end to a regime that has been the root cause of all the problems we've been facing, to liberate a nation that will be the guarantee of stability and will eliminate every single problem you see today, from radicalism to extremism to terrorism to the nuclear threat. So uh, Joel uh, encourages uh, people to uh, tune in to this episode, and so uh, we would encourage you uh, to uh, check that out. It's uh, available online uh, for downloading at uh, tbn.com. You can look up the Rosenberg Report, and they have uh, archives not only of this interview, but a number of really wonderful interviews, including an interview uh, that Joel did a couple of weeks ago uh, with a remarkable woman who escaped from Iran after having been uh, sentenced to uh, prison for openly evangelizing uh, Iranian uh, in uh, faith in Christ. Uh, when she was in the notorious Evan prison, she led uh, worship uh, services there, uh, taught the gospel there. They could not shut her up in spite of vicious 
and physical persecution. Finally, they kicked her out of the country, and Joel had the opportunity to uh, interview her. So if you want to get a little bit deeper into what's going on in Iran and really be encouraged, uh, you know, we uh, tend to see the world through the very limited channels of uh, our uh, modern alphabet network media. Uh, I really believe, and we've mentioned this before, that uh, news services like the ones we uh, are used to using today uh, to get our views on the world are going the way of uh, 8-track tapes and answering machines and things along this line, uh, streaming services uh, where you can choose who you feel are reliable sources of information about uh, news in the world are, I think, going to be the, uh, the channel of choice uh, before too long. And, uh, you know, what is, we mentioned what's gone on with Fox News and Tucker Carlson and so on. And I think uh, you're going to see that uh, Tucker Carlson's, I think, reemergence in a streaming format, much like uh, Joe Rogan's, uh, the Joe Rogan experience, is going to so outstrip uh, the audiences that you see on uh, cable news services and so on that uh, it's really going to uh, create an avalanche of movement in that direction. So uh, very good to have these kind of channels available to you. Uh, don't get force-fed news just from a couple of uh, news sources. We try to do our best to uh, see a number of different news sources for you and keep you up to date on matters of biblical prophecy. But don't just use us. Uh, you know, visit some others as well. Uh, we would highly recommend Amir Serfati's Behold Israel uh, website and uh, the updates that he does on a weekly basis. We would also uh, encourage you to take a look at CalvaryProphecy.com, among others. And, of course, uh, all Israel news and all Arab news uh, that Joel Rosenberg has uh, put together. So uh, being informed in these days is really, really exciting because, you know, as we discover what's really going on in the epicenter, what's happening in Israel right now, what's happening uh, among the player nations that are described as being a part of the last days and the end times, in passages like Ezekiel 38 and 39, for instance, just to name one, uh, boy, it can really uh, help us not to become so grounded uh, in this world that we become distressed or depressed. Uh, it can really be a daily reminder that we need to constantly be looking up because our Lord Jesus Christ can return at any time. And that is uh, what the Bible calls the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, uh, Christ Jesus. It could happen even before this broadcast is over. So check these things out, and uh, we're happy to pass these things along and encourage you and kind of prompt you in the direction of uh, getting involved with some of these streaming services that can uh, really uh, be edifying for you, really be a blessing in your life. Great. Thank uh, you for that. Oh, yeah. You got it. Yeah, appreciate it. Any, uh, any other uh, sites that you can think of that uh, our audience needs to uh, uh, be uh, plugged into to really get a good overview of prophecy? Prophecy in particular, no. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Try to keep that window narrow and well-tested. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good idea. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. Great. Well, we've got some questions. If you guys are ready to yeah, let's dive, dive into in. them. Yeah. Um, we had at the end of our show yesterday a question from uh, Patricia, who I believe is, maybe even uh, you may know her very well. But uh, she asked uh, about God's forgiveness. Uh, God forgives, but does he forget? So I guess she had a bit of a discussion at a Bible study. Um, we know God forgives us, but does he forget our sin? Or in what sense does he forget our sin? Well, there are passages that we find in Scripture, obviously, that talk about how God deals with our sins. You know, we think of uh, Psalm 103, 
uh, that says that uh, he has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. Yeah. Now, no, notice this doesn't say from the north to the south. It says from the east to the west. I think that's significant because, you know, you look at uh, the world as it's currently constituted, and there's a North Pole and a South Pole. If God had said, I've removed your sins as far away from you as the North is from the South, that would be a finite distance from one point to the other. But there's no such thing as an East Pole and a West Pole. You keep going East, you're gonna go East indefinitely. You go right. West, you're gonna go West indefinitely. And so that idea of removing our sins, uh, the idea uh, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, you know, that, that God has taken uh, the list of decrees that was hostile against us, the book of Colossians says, and taken it out of the way by nailing it uh, to the cross. Uh, you know, once again, I think a pastor put it this way, that uh, God has placed our sins in a sea of forgetfulness, uh, the, the book of, uh, of Micah says, and he's also put up a no fishing sign. So, you know, if God has forgiven our sins, has he, in fact, forgotten our sins and Sean is there a difference yeah when it comes to the I guess idea of God remembering our sins it's assumed with it the fact that there's that sort of conflict or animus that we oftentimes uh, bring with it whenever we remember the faults of other people as you said there's a difference between holding something against someone legally and outright violating his omniscience. The fact that God knows everything and the fact that God can in fact treat us justified in light of the finished work of his son can both be true. What oftentimes is the mistake in these situations is assuming our pettiness onto God. It was like the short that we uploaded this week about godly jealousy and what was discussed in Ezekiel chapter 8. An emotional desire for exclusivity isn't a character flaw on God's part. Just because we don't get something right doesn't mean the source introduced something wrong. So if we're going to stand legally justified before God, yes, he's aware of the fact we've rebelled against him, but he's also aware of the fact those things have been dealt with forever. And I think the best living example of what that looks like practically, believe it or not, is in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph is uh, basically approached by his brothers pleading for his life after their father dies, thinking that was the only reason that he spared their lives, not getting vengeance for selling him into slavery. And Joseph's reaction is actually quite unique among human beings. He starts weeping and he says, We've already dealt with this, what you intended for evil, he acknowledges that, but God intended for good. He sees it in light of the whole picture. And in God's legal relationship with us, he doesn't bring with it resentment. He doesn't bring with it bitterness. He doesn't bring with it not himself. <laughs> he, as a perfect being, can in fact express all knowledge and not all resentment, not all bitterness, not all of the violations of his perfect nature. We need to be careful how we define and approach God and make sure we remember he's not just a 700-foot effigy of ourselves. And when you oftentimes see this objection from atheists and saying, so God committed genocide. No, that's intent. You might do that if you were wiping out large groups of people, but the intent in this wasn't because of their genus. It was because of their actions, a legal conclusion. Oh, so your God is jealous. So he's so uh, envious 
of people, that he just can't stand the idea of something other than him being the center of attention. No, that's your execution of jealousy, but a desire for exclusivity is not a character flaw in of itself. Make sure that we define our terms, make sure we define our God, and make sure that we define and actually apply examples where knowing about something and not holding it against someone legally can both be true. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because if I say to you, well, like, you know, I forgive you, but I won't forget, that's more a context of, that's not really forgiveness at all. I haven't that would be bitterness you. and resentment yeah. and those <laughs> right. kinds of things, and even the tone kind of gives it away. Yes. But yeah. if on the other hand we say, okay, God is saying, I know what you've done, right? but you're justified in the name of the Lord right. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I think uh, kind of the, uh, <coughs> the, the nub of the issue comes down to uh, when people ask that question, well, you know, should we forgive and forget? Uh, can you actually forget something, right. you know, just kind of do a mind wipe? Yeah. You're, you're certainly going to remember certain things, but, you know, there's a really interesting uh, concept in Scripture. Uh, the name of the prophet Zechariah literally means God remembers. Hmm. It means that God remembers, and the, the theme of the book, God remembers his covenant to his people. Uh, and it's not as if God was in heaven and going, oh, yeah, I made all these promises to Israel. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, you know, you know, unlike me, where, you know, I will space things out. I can quote to you all the lyrics of the songs done by the monkeys, but uh, I can't remember. My wife asked me to pick something up on yeah. the way home from work. Uh, you know, when people say, does God forget our sins? Well, you know, does he, is he going to remember our sins? You no, know, he says, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. Hmm. You're remembering in the sense of remembering them, in the sense of bringing them to mind, in the sense of dealing with them according to his attributes, uh, including his holiness and his justice. Hmm. You know, and just as God remembered his covenant for good, and boy, read the book of Zechariah. It's just a beautiful picture of God remembering his promises to the exiles in Israel who are coming back and, and, and restoring the land. Uh, in, in the same way, uh, God does not forget in the sense of a mind wipe of our sins, and, and I wouldn't want him to. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he forgives us, he forgives us with full knowledge mm -hmm. of everything that we've done. And yet the blood of Jesus is so powerful. Uh, it completely pays the price for our sins. God does not judge us based upon those sins. We don't receive what we deserve for our sins. And so when someone says, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget it, um, they're, yeah. I, I don't think they're, they're just saying, you know, well, it's, it's kind of locked in my, my brain cells up here. What they're saying is, uh, I'll forgive you, but if you ever cross me, yeah. I'm going to bring this thing up and beat you about the head with it <laughs> right. uh, until you uh, are, are bloodied and broken. Yeah. Um, that's not Christian forgiveness. You know, it, it's just uh, interesting. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, we are told that we are to be uh, forgiving towards one another, showing love towards another as Christ has done for us. Mm. You know, so how do you do that? Well, you know, I can't do that. Yeah. That requires the filling and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, I, I went through a really difficult time where, uh, you know, I really had to come to grips with the fact that I harbored not just feelings of, um, well, passive uh, aggression towards some people that had really done me some wrong in the past, but I actually had hatred for them, mm. really did. And God, you know, when he brought these things to my mind, 
uh, also brought a very interesting picture to my mind when I was praying about it. Uh, you know, I just felt like I was in the depths of depression, just thinking I would never get out of this. But he reminded me of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and that uh, an angel was sent to strengthen him because he was in such agony of spirit. And as if the Lord spoke to me and said, if my son needed my help to do what was right in the Garden of Gethsemane, what makes you think you can do the right thing? Forgive people in yeah. your own power, in your own strength. Mm -hmm. And I realized something. The only way I was going to get out of that slough of despond, to use Peter Martin's uh, view from, or image from earlier in the week, mm -hmm. the only way I was going to get out of there was to realize, A, God had already forgiven these people for what they'd done for me. Jesus had already paid the price for their sin yeah. when he died on the cross. Right. And that what I needed to do was to ask God to forgive these people through me. And, you know, I'm very honest with the Lord. I said, well, God, you know all I've got in my heart is bitterness and animosity. I, mm. I hope terrible things happen to their house pets. But <laughs> I'm, I'm pets. willing for you to forgive these people through me, mm. you know, just by, by faith. And when I did that, man, I just felt like a 100-pound weight went off my shoulder. Yeah. And I really believe that God orchestrated all these events to bring me to a place of understanding that forgiveness, real forgiveness, is not something we do for God or because it's the right thing or the Christian thing to do. It, it requires an, out, an absolute out-and-out -out miracle. The, the Holy Spirit forgiving people through us. And when you experience that miracle and the amazing liberation it brings to our hearts and our mind, man, it, you know, it, it's like you find yourself, why didn't I do this sooner? Uh, but, yeah. but there's a lot of people that will say, by golly, you know, Jesus died for me. And he says, if you don't forgive, then you're not gonna be forgiven. And so by golly, I'm gonna, work I'm gonna forgive this person. And well, you, you might as well just say to yourself, whatever I do, I'm not gonna think about a pink elephant. Yeah. Because you're, you're going to think about it. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm not going to have bitter thoughts anymore. <laughs> What's going to happen within five minutes? Bitter thoughts yeah. are going to come back. The only way around that is not to try harder to do the right Christian thing, but to walk in the Holy Spirit, to ask God by faith for his Spirit's power to do it as many times in a day as you need to do it. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily a, a, a you know, one-shot deal, and now I'm happy all the day, and I don't have, you know, and, and it can be a good thing because, even bitter thoughts and resentments can be a, a great way for God's smoke alarm to go off that indicates that we are taking our lives into our own hands. We are trying to manage things mm -hmm. in our own strength and that we do need to just simply turn ourselves back to the Lord and, and, and give our lives back to him and ask for the renewed filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to do these things. Many times in days you need to do it, need to do it. Yeah. But it, you know, you, you'll find, and, and, and I'll, I'll we'll move on to another question after this, but. People ask me this question, how can you recognize real maturity in someone's walk with Christ? Well, I think the best way to measure real Christian maturity, not how many scriptures you can speak or theologians you can quote or, or you know, spiritual resume items you've got on your list, the, the best way to measure maturity is the amount of distance in our lives between the time we kind of recognize that we're managing things in our own power and strength mm. and the moment we turn back to God and give our lives back mm. to him. You know, if we can shorten that distance over time, we're going to be getting somewhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. That sounds like a good benchmark for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, great question. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is. It's a great discussion. Thank you for that. A uh, question here from um, S.A. Eggleton. Uh, I heard someone say in Old Testament times, according to the Hebrew, it was only considered adultery if you had sex with a married woman. That's why David was never punished for his concubines or other sexual actions, only his sin with Bathsheba. This goes against everything I've ever been taught, he says. 
So yeah, that, and, or? three and and with good reason. But go ahead. <laughs> yes, <laughs> three big mistakes. First, the classic cop out, usually coming from someone who's trying to make excuses for their own lifestyles. Because God didn't directly or immediately punish something, therefore that's a conclusion of indifference or even approval. That's not true. If there's a verbal condemnation of something, but God is patient with someone, that doesn't mean he approves of their lifestyle. Look at the 400 years Israel was given of second chances of literally roasting newborn children alive in altars to Moloch. That's a mark of God's patience, not his approval of those sort of actions. In Jeremiah, we have a direct and verbal condemnation of that. Secondly, and I've had these conversations with people before, when we talk about, you know, the Bible, Bible condemns adultery, but it doesn't have anything against, you know, sex outside of marriage. Well, the problem with that logic is either you're, I guess, uh, pigeonholing, I think is the word, uh, demanding that sort of phrase in Scripture in order for it to be a conclusion you'll expect, or uh, you'll accept, rather, whereas the word in Scripture is fornication, and there's right. throughout the entire Bible condemnations towards that. The third issue and faulty assumption is in order for someone to take that kind of claim seriously, they have to know next to nothing about the life of David and the fallout, not just of his 2 Samuel 11 decision regarding Uriah, Bathsheba, and the others, but even the events that took place in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 18, the Absalom incident, is of course what I'm referring to. When the prophet Nathan called David out on the carpet, not just for his sin with Bathsheba, which was adultery and murder, but also for lying about it for an entire yep. year, and also for putting on the face a false witness of himself to the nation and misrepresenting God, and of course other issues, there's, and I'll, I'll get to my rabbit trail there in a second, let me just finish this thought. We need to understand that Nathan's condemnation of David's decision wasn't just that decision. When he prophesied that the sword would never depart from your house, it was a result and a consequence of the sum total of decisions that he had made until this point. And now he was being called out on it in a tangible way rather than in a verbal or in a convicting sort of way. You can read the Psalms where in, uh, I believe it's Psalm 52 or 51, he talks about him 51, being 51 yeah. uh, dried up like a pot shirt within him, that God was punishing him in a emotional Psalm sense. Psalm 32, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but not, of course, in the sense of uh, facing, I guess, mortal repercussions that he deserved. So here's the tricky part, and this is where I was going to segue before I finished my thought. When we look at David's children in the room, the Bible's honest history, sex life, and his marital life. There was obviously the first girl that he was married to, Michal, the daughter of Saul, which put him in a, uh, I guess, legal position to inherit the royal, uh, the crown. Yeah, part of the royal family. Yeah, that was the word I was looking yeah. for, or the series of words, rather. And then when Saul kind of spit his bit and kicked David out of the home, he took Michal from him, I guess, signed a divorce in absentia and married her off to some other man. Now, when David was separated from Michal, he was introduced, and this is in the end of 1 Samuel, to another lovely young lady by the name of Abigail. And that, I think, it's an opinion, but with some scriptural grounding, 
was God essentially restoring to David everything that the world had tried to take away from him, that you abide in me, I'll take care of you. Right. But then we see David start to make mistakes in marital relationships in forcing Michal to come back to him and essentially adding her to his collection, what we call the harem, the concubines, that he would, of course, uh, make use of regularly. We also note that his accumulation of concubines and the statement that was made in 2 Samuel 12 by Nathan and saying, if you had need of these wives, would I have not have given them to you? That's not God saying, I would provide for you multiple wives. It was him saying, if you had a need, I would provide it. That's the objective statement. If we look, and the reason I can conclude that is because God doesn't contradict himself. If we look in Deuteronomy, what was the law of kings in Deuteronomy 18? They are not to multiply wives for themselves. 17. Not to multiply wives for themselves, not to multiply horses, meaning military might, and not to multiply wealth, but they will draw your heart away from God. So noting and reconciling what we do know about God and what we do know about David, God was taking care of him, but he was also making his own decisions, story of our lives. Yet in these mistakes, these compromises are what set him up, the multiple marriages, the multiple women, to have multiple sons and daughters, noting the (laughs) incident that took place with Absalom's sister, that ultimately led to one of the most horrific events of his life, and that's even compared to the time with his father-in-law. So we need to ask the question, if I have to bank on ignorance as a conclusion, going back to the first point, God didn't directly condemn that action of David. No, everything that David was doing in regards to marriage was pretty much one screw up after another, and the consequences accumulated into a tangible way. We didn't punish him except for the Bathsheba part. No, we didn't punish him externally, but you look in the Psalms, there's a lot of conviction going on internally. God's patience is what's key. The third issue, and this is also worth noting, if we ask ourselves the question, what actually is the issue of... Uh, relational compromises. Why is God, to quote the uh, late and now fully aware of God's existence, atheist Christopher Hitchens, noting why is he so obsessed with our sex lives like some North Korean dictator? Well, here's the reason. Because our relationships, marriage in particular, are powerful. They make a very lasting impact, not just on us, but those around us, especially the other individual usually involved in that. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why when you say, I assaulted somebody, that's considered wrong, but you sexually assaulted somebody, suddenly we're going into capital murder (laughs) in most sane conclusions and conversations. Why? Because the introduction of those factors is just that serious, that potent, that powerful, which is why Christians take such a strong view on it, why Jewish tradition put such heavy penalties towards people who violated those sort of standards, and of course why even today the Judeo-Christian ethic tries to, at least in spite of our culture's attempts to undo it, elevate the status of our sexuality as something not to be toyed around with. So the point being made is this. If I make the argument, just to repeat the point so it's remembered, that God didn't punish David for his uh, harem, that he continued to struggle with that even to the end of his life, we read that in 1 Kings chapter 1, then that means he approved of it. Absolutely ridiculous. God can punish you in other than external 
legal and physical ways. Secondly, the sum total of his decisions are what set up the Absalom incident, not just the Bathsheba one. And then thirdly, when we asked the question, and he, he did have a follow-up about the original languages, but I don't think it's that relevant, uh, the idea that if someone's trying to come to a conclusion on something being unclear or unspoken or unsaid, then they need to not be heard, not let you speak to them, or not let them speak to you, and not let anything be said, because they're trying to manipulate you. When it comes down to it, there's plenty that we can conclude from the life of David that God was dealing with him in multiple ways, and also providing for him in multiple ways. But as a fallen sinful human being, he made mistakes and faced consequences. The good news is God was even able to use him in the midst of those things. That's the good news. But the bad news is there are still people who will try to use him, not just including, but certainly not limited to, cult groups like Joseph Smith and the Mormons trying to support polygamy because of these actions. Don't let someone try to play that card. It's completely a non-starter. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a really good application point you're bringing up in, um, you know, not just staying away from behaviors or actions because there's no consequences to it. Because I think there's always consequences to sin, and that could just be on a level with our relationship with God, that we're not glorifying him or reflecting him. These are consequences. Just because we didn't, we didn't find any punishment, I just, I stole this, but there was no punishment, then it must be okay with God. That's a terrible way to live. Because <laughs> yeah. if God really cared, he would smite me, right? right, right. Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting God you got there. I'd recommend the one of the Bible, though, because he's patient, but not yeah. fooled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the only thing I would add to that is, and I was looking at uh, what you said, essay about uh, how this conversation kind of confused you a bit. Uh, you know, someone came to you with kind of some sleight of hand sophistry and said, well, in the original language, yeah. this means. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I survived the seminary experience. I have a three-year master's degree with an emphasis in biblical languages and theology. Um, want to get that out there before I make any other comments on this. In all the years that I've been studying God's Word, including my master's thesis and all of the uh, intense study that I did, I have yet to find a single verse that you cannot understand uh, by seeing it in its context. Mm -hmm. If anyone comes to you and says, you can't understand what this verse means by reading it in English and looking at its literal, grammatical, historical context, you must understand this only by some nuance uh, an incredibly precise definition this person will put forward of this word in the original language. If someone comes to you and says that, uh, no disrespect intended, but they're woofing. It, I have not found a single passage of scripture that you will ever look at in your English translations of the Bible and say, well, uh, you know, if you just saw that word love there and didn't understand that there are five different kinds of love in the original language and in this set of circumstances the word love there is agape as opposed to phileo or storge or you know you name it uh you know when someone starts going down that path um i think they are maybe sincere but doing you a disservice because what it does is it takes us a step back from understanding that God wants his word to be understood. I mean, I, I love what Proverbs chapter eight says about this. Uh, in verse eight, it says, all the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They're all plain to him who understands and right to those 
who uh, find knowledge. Uh, you know, what we should be looking for in the scripture is the plain meaning of the text. And when someone comes to you and says that the plain meaning of the text doesn't mean what you think it says. Uh, John 3.16 doesn't mean that God so loved the world that he gave his love. No, that, that only applies to the elect. It's not there in the passage. They will try to do some song and dance with the original language and say, well, no, 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 you know, that, 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 that uh, leads you astray. No, it doesn't lead you astray. The people who are leading you astray are the ones that are trying to say, hey, look over here, I've got an agenda, and uh, boy, you know, I want you to follow me because I alone have, you know, the secret insights. Start sounding almost like uh, the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word that means knowledge. And the Gnostics believed that only a handful of the hyper-spiritual elite could really understand what God's message was, and that you had to go through their various initiations and trials, sometimes, uh, you know, incredible, uh, incredibly rigorous ascetic, uh, you know, disciplines, to finally get to the place where you're among the enlightened, the ones who really understand uh, God's word. Uh, and you know, the, the New Testament, boy, you know, you want to see somebody who's down on the Gnostics, read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Mm. Uh, you know, this idea that there's some hidden knowledge, the book of Colossians, uh, you know, again, the idea uh, that someone could, uh, you know, take their delight in visions they've seen or the worship of angels or things along this line. Instead of Christ, uh, you know, God's word, I've discovered, says what it means and means what it says. Mm. And uh, it isn't that studying uh, in the original languages can't give you maybe a more vivid picture of what is being said there. You know, for instance, God so loved the world. Well, if someone explains to you that God's love is agape love, it's not just warm feelings, it's sacrificial love. And that's the way agape love is, the highest kind of love. It's pure love. Uh, that's a beautiful insight, but it's not something uh, that you could never find out just by reading John chapter 3 and how God feels about the world yeah that's really powerful to know that yeah. you know we can sit down we don't need a degree in theology to sit down with the word and pray and receive truth from it. yeah and, and i mean i know i'm kind of shooting myself in the foot because you know <laughs> i could set myself up as being the great and powerful oz who alone understands <laughs> you the bible and you should alone come to us because we alone can handle it properly but, but you but that's, fear god that's, <laughs> yes. that's where cults get going and yes that's right fear god. yeah and uh he had a follow-up as well about uh, abraham why was his it was it ever referred to as a sin blankly in regard to his concubines uh Peter Martin's mentioned this, I'll repeat it because he was right then too. The idea that when we're talking about, well, the Bible doesn't say that's a sin, therefore it's a righteous thing, or that God's just kind of neutral. Once again, the Bible isn't this long list of ethics like the Quran or this, uh, you know, rule book as it's oftentimes advertised by people with less than a shred of integrity to their name. When we're talking about scripture, it makes a positive affirmation for what marriage is in the first four pages, and then we tend to mess it up from there. We'll get more into another question on Genesis in a moment, and noting kind of the details that aren't spoken as opposed to those that are. But when it comes to ethics, the Bible doesn't say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It will lay that out when Israel was being given their laws in Exodus 20 through 23, but compared to the entire Torah, that's not a lot of list of rules. Deuteronomy repeats some of those rules, but only to remind them of all the things that they've broken, which is why the book of Romans makes careful 
attention to point out the law only shows us what's wrong it's not the solution to that wrong if we ask ourselves the question was abraham in line with the biblical definition of marriage no he was not one man one woman for one lifetime a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife not his wives and some girls on the side for his pleasure that's roman law not biblical law when we were talking about the standards that god has obviously he can't say anything less than perfection. He can't violate who he is. When we fall short of it, we should seek restoration. The fact that these guys still struggled with it show they're human just like the rest of us, but the fact that God was gracious with them does not mean that it's approval on his part. It just means that he's patient. Yeah, very good. Great. Well, I say Eggleton, thank you for your question. Thanks for being part of the show. That was a great discussion that that uh, sparked off, so appreciate that. Uh, question from Bear. Could you guys expand on the Genesis story of Noah and uh-huh. why Ham was cursed for seeing Noah naked? Ham it wasn't sounds cursed. like when I read it that he was that it was an accident, or was it because he told his brothers? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Right off the bat, it wasn't Ham who was cursed, oh. and that's where the controversy comes in. Mm. The, the the passage bears referring to here uh, is the aftermath of the flood. Uh, Noah and his family are kind of settling back down to as much normalcy as they could possibly get into. And we are told uh, that God had established a covenant uh, with Noah and his sons. Uh, You know, again, the beginning of capital punishment is mentioned there and so on. Uh, The idea of being able to eat meat um, was emphasized in this covenant that God made with Noah and his sons. But in verse 18, it says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, the whole earth was populated. Uh, and, and just a little bit of an aside here, people that say, well, this was just a local flood, and they just floated down the, the uh, uh, Euphrates Valley, and it seemed really bad because the whole Euphrates Valley got... No, it says the whole world was populated by these three sons of Noah. It says, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and he became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother, brethren. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So, you know, a few controversies come up here. First of all, Noah is passed out drunk, which tells you that even though Noah found favor in the eyes of God, <laughs> Uh, he was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Yep. He was seen by God as forgiven and justified. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 goes into the fact that it was by faith Noah was made right with God and no other way. It wasn't because he was perfect or, or more uh, morally righteous than anyone else. He had his faults and his flaws. Obviously, one of them was falling into drunkenness. So some people would say, well, after the flood, the world changed and the idea of uh, you know grapes being fermented he didn't understand that and so you know this drunkenness was unintended Mm. on his part that's reading an awful lot into the passage basically even if we assume you're right it doesn't change the issue yeah so noah's drunk 
he's passed out naked in his tent and we are told something happened that Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside well the two brothers go out of their way to show the proper respect to a biblical patriarch you know they put a covering over them they back in and put it over dad and they move on their way. Which is also important because this is uh, assumed by some people to be a euphemism for Ham having some sort of sexual encounter with his father to uncover the nakedness of your father and right. your mother and, and all these And it says things. when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, they would interpret that as some kind of sexual uh, thing that had happened here. But, but all that had been done to him was that Ham ran out and uh, told not only his two brothers, but evidently his son Canaan, that the old man was drunk and naked in the tent. But and, in contrast, and, what did Ham, or Shem and Japheth do? Yeah. In contrast to Ham, no, none of them are told, unless you assume the euphemism, it's assumed that the only actions are those that are reported. And what's plainly stated, as you said, is what? Ham saw and mocked, Japheth didn't see and didn't mock. They covered their father's right, shame. Right. So here we find Canaan being cursed. Now the question always comes up, okay, if it was Ham, the father of Canaan, who did this and spread the rumor about him, why uh, does Canaan take it heavy? Why wasn't Ham cursed? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, the Bible says that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Uh, God blessed, we are told, in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 1, Noah and his sons. And when God blesses you, you are blessed. It isn't like, well, you're blessed, but you better toe the line, because if you get out of line, then you're no longer blessed. Well, that's a works-based righteousness. And again, Hebrews chapter 11, Noah's relationship with God, the covenant he had with him, was based upon faith. So uh, Ham was blessed, and he would be blessed. You know, when God blesses somebody, you know, like we say, the gifts and call of God are without repentance. Uh, you know, again, uh, the whole thing of Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau found out in a big-time hurry that uh, when Isaac blessed Jacob, he said, uh, he's blessed and he will be blessed. I can't take it back. God's going to bless him. So Again, we see Ham was going to be blessed by God. However, Ham's offspring, his immediate offspring, a fellow by the name of Canaan, apparently was uh, a part of all of this and had, you know, again, we're implying something here, but I don't think it's a reach. Uh, having the same attitude as Ham towards uh, this biblical patriarch. And so Canaan ended up being cursed. Now, why is this emphasized here? Well, remember something. The first five books of Genesis were written by? Moses. Okay, who were the people of Israel going to be dealing with when they went into the Promised Land? Canaan's descendants. The descendants of Canaan. So we see this shot over the bow, if you will, as to how God was going to deal with the Canaanites. Now, God was incredibly patient with the Canaanites. When Abraham could have gone in and wiped out the Canaanites uh, were told in Genesis 15 that uh, their iniquity had not yet reached its fulfillment. Still They'd be given another 700 years. Another 700 years to get right with God. 
they used that 700 years to basically invent all kinds of wickedness beyond anything we could possibly ever imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, you visit Canaanite archaeological sites and it's it's bad. There it's, are it's children's really, skeletons really, in their bricks. Really, 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 really bad. Wow. Uh, and uh, and so here we see where the roots of this were. Mm. Uh, a lack of reverence to God always results in disrespect and and uh, again the oppression ultimately of men. And that's exactly what happened with the Canaanites. Canaan was a chip off the old block. Now Ham was blessed in the sense that the Hamite people would be one-third of the world's population. It would all flow back from him. Well, and the same with Esau. He was given seven sons, mighty yeah, princes, yeah, and they founded yeah, great cities. Yeah. But Canaan would always be in that subsidiary servant's position as a result of all of this. And again, why? Because Israel was being given a law, honor your father and mother. What did Ham not do, and how did that affect future generations? He didn't dwell uh, long in the land. Right, right. So, you know, there you see that foreshadowing of a part of the Ten Commandments yeah. uh, that has a promise that it may be well with you, that you may dwell long in the land. Right. Uh, I guess it's all relative. Canaan's uh, descendants did dwell in the land, but ultimately they were exterminated. Um, the, all the, driven out. The, uh, the people that uh, dwelled or even dwelt uh, in the land of Israel today are not Canaanites. They are not, you know, Horites or Amorites or Perizzites. They are Arabs. Uh, essentially, if you're not Jewish, you're an Arab in that particular neck of the woods. Descendants so. of the Nabataeans, but it is worth noting that there were interactions, uh, one in particular, a Canaanite woman coming to Jesus for healing for her daughter who was possessed, and it's worth noting as well, she probably did that to her, but the point being made was that the Messiah came for those nations too. Yeah, yeah she was Syrophoenician, so, so anyway, um, not a lot of people saying, hey, I'm a Hittite. These days. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, true. I haven't seen a Hittite Christian church. Yeah. Yet. We had a question just coming from Renee. And yeah. so probably take us home. We've got about four minutes left or less. With a prayer request, too. Let's get oh, some yeah. time for that. Oh, yeah. Um, Renee asks What if the whole world turned against you because of your past, but you know that God has forgiven you in your heart? What scriptures, scriptures can you give um, to know that God has forgiven you? We mentioned them at the start of the broadcast. Several psalms note that he has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. But if we're going to say, I have been forgiven, we should receive that forgiveness on his terms. If you can define his terms and point to a time in your life where you have received that, that's the greatest assurance you can have, even if also referencing the psalms, mother and father abandoned me, the whole world is against me, still you will lead me by your hand. Uh, the best place to go to, again, are passages that reference the terms and conditions of your salvation. Romans 10, 9 through 10, uh, Ephesians 2, 9 through 11, and uh, obviously my personal favorite, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Those are some good passages to keep in mind regarding how you've been forgiven and how you can renew that spirit in your heart. Also knowing if you still have a relationship with God that's intact, another good passage to keep in mind is Second Peter chapter 1, I think 3 through 7, uh, noting these things that will abound in you. you five will be through 11. Five yeah. through 11, thank yeah. you. Uh, those are some passages to keep in mind, Renee. Yeah, and, and Renee, the other thing I would encourage you to, to look at in, in terms of something that is illustrative and that you can hold on to is John chapter 8, uh, Jesus dealing with a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, they had her dead to rights. And, uh, you know, again, 
you can see how Jesus dealt with her and uh, finally says, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And the, the most powerful line there, I think, is Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yeah. Well, that's how God deals with us. He doesn't condemn us. He convicts us. He calls us to a better and higher level of living than we've ever known before, but he doesn't condemn us. And, uh, you know, I, I would really encourage you if you've got other people that are serving as critics of your life, certainly that woman had a whole very officious and very religiously respectable uh, rogues gallery of critics calling for her execution. Yeah. And it just took one person, Jesus, to stand up for her, and Jesus continues to stand up for you. Mm-hmm. He, uh, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, he is seated at the right hand of God who is also making intercession for you. Yeah. He's pleading your case before the Father. And if Jesus says you're okay, then you're okay. Right. Yeah, it's a bit prosperity gospelish, right? To, well, we're forgiven, so everything should be hunky-dory. And that's just not the case. You know, there's still going to be struggles in this life. Yeah, if you say the same sort of things that Jesus said to the same sort of people he said them to, you're going to get what he got. Yeah, very true. So, you know, if you're going to suffer, make sure you're suffering because you're close to Jesus. That's yeah. the most important thing. Right, right, right. Uh, well, as you mentioned, Tom, we have a prayer request from Rich. Came in. He said he's seen his doctor tomorrow, possible hernia uh, on his left side that's kind of flared up. Uh, praying Pray for, for healing him. and full recovery for Rich. Yeah. Yeah. Dad, thank you that we can cast our cares on you knowing you care for us. And while medical situations are certainly the last thing we want to hear, our peace of mind is one that can pass all understanding if it comes from you. Give Rich the comfort that he needs as well as the wisdom to the doctors who will be treating him. And thank you that whether it's by the hands of man or by your divine hand that you can provide him healing in this day and age. We ask that that would be done and that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. Thank God you bless for being you guys. part of The Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.